0: Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Zen Buddhism by the Numbers. Number three. The Trikaya, Eno's three-bodied Buddha within you. The Dharmakaya, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya. The three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Three marks of existence, impermanence, anika, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, not-self, anatta. Three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance. Eno exhausted the topic of the three-bodied Buddha, but Rinzai was typically terse, Do you wish to be no different from the Buddhas and Patriarchs? Then just do not look for anything outside. The pure light of your own heart, your heart-mind, at this instant is the Dharmakaya Buddha in your own house. The non-differentiating light of your heart at this instant is the Sambhogakaya Buddha in your own house. The non-discriminating light of your own heart at this instant is the Nirmanakaya Buddha in your own house. This trinity of the Buddha's body is none other than you here before my eyes, listening to my expounding the Dharma. The three treasures are our true refuge, but amidst turmoil and confusion, You will not remain long deceived if you keep the three marks of existence clearly in mind. And as for the three poisons, Atisha knew how to turn venom into gold. Three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. So even in this one Rahatsu day, we can now say that it's afternoon. Just a little bit afternoon, but afternoon. We're entering the home stretch. It's funny, the more often you do Rahatsu, the faster the rahatsu seem to go. You know, the first time that you do it, the eight days just—it seems like about eight years. You seem to—you seem to age, you know. <laughs> and I did it when I was pretty young, so I, you know, I—I I, I felt like a boy when I started it, and felt like a man when I finished. Um, but the more times you do it, you know, you develop this rhythm, and it just—it just flows so naturally. And one day doesn't seem so onerous, even if it's on a calendar eight days long. I hope that many of you have gotten to that point. So the the last time that I spoke to you, I read the Dao Te Jing uh, chapter 42, and that chapter begins with Tao engenders one, one engenders two, two engenders three, three engenders the 10,000 things. So we've gotten now to three, two engendering three, and we're up to the number three. Number three is when you think about it, and don't attach any Buddhist ideas to it. It's a wonderful number. It's a prime number. It's found over and over again in spiritual doctrines and disciplines throughout so many cultures. And this trikaya, you know, has its Christian uh, echo in the Trinity. Uh, having so many points in common. And three is a number of stability. Think of the tripod that this camera is on. You know, one is a wonderful number. It's an absolute. Two is a wonderful number also. But three, you get to three, and suddenly it feels very solid. It feels settled, and all of the concepts in Buddhism that are related to the number three, or most of the concepts at least, have that settled feeling to them. The trikaya, which Is an attempt to explain the facets of what we think of as Buddha, or you could think of as God, or the spirit, or you know, whatever whatever word you'd like to use for it. One one face is not enough for it, you know? There's so much to it the dharmakaya, the nirmanakaya, the sambhogakaya. The dharmakaya is the great expanse, the unborn, the undying, just like Tao. The Dharmakaya, limitless, boundless. If you were to think of it in terms of natural phenomenon, it's often equated with the sky. Just a boundless, you look up and it just seems to never end. The Dharmakaya, embracing everything, underlying everything. Everything proceeds from it just as the Tao engenders one. The Sambhogakaya. This is sometimes called the body of enjoyment, the Dharmakaya being called the body of truth, the body of enjoyment. And this one is a little bit harder to pin down. It's a bit nebulous. If you were to follow this nature analogy, it's like a cloud. It's there, but it, it shifts. It's never the same. You can think of it as the mandala of spiritual connections. All of these emissaries that come, and they contact, and they generate something else, the sambhogakaya. In the Christian analogy, you might think of it as the Holy Spirit, and the nirmanakaya, the body of emanation. This is the easiest to conceptualize because we have examples. The Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, the Buddhas to come, the Buddhas that preceded Shakyamuni Buddha, the ones we chant in our Te Dai the Nirmanakaya. To follow the Christian analogy, you could think of Jesus Christ. The dharmakaya made flesh temporarily to impart the teachings. Of course, Zen being Zen, The ancestors have a very different interpretation of all of these things. The sixth patriarch, Eno, or in Chinese, Wineng, in the Platform Sutra, speaking of the Trikaya, he said, Good friends, while I confer on you the formless precepts, you must all experience this for yourselves. Recite this together with me, and it will enable you to see the three-bodied Buddha within you. I take refuge in the pure Dharma-body Buddha in my own material body, the Dharmakaya. I take refuge in the myriad fold transformation-body Buddha, in my own material body, the Sambhogakaya. I take refuge in the future and perfect realization body, Buddha in my own material body, the Nirmanakaya. Now recite this three times. This material body is an in and not a fit refuge. But the three bodies I just mentioned are your ever-present dharma nature. Everyone has them. But because people are deluded, they don't see them. They look for the three-bodied tathagata outside themselves and don't see the three-bodied Buddha in their own material body. Good friends, listen to this good friend of yours. And I will tell you, good friends, how to see within your own material body the three-bodied Buddha that arises from this nature of yours. What do we mean by the pure Dharma body Buddha, the Dharmakaya? Good friends, everyone's nature is fundamentally pure. And the 10,000 dharmas are present in this nature. If we think about doing something bad, we commit bad deeds. And if we think about doing something good, we perform good deeds. Thus, we know all dharmas are present in our nature. But our nature itself remains pure. The sun and moon are always shining. It's only due to cloud cover that there's light above but darkness below and we can't see the sun or moon or stars. Then suddenly the wind of wisdom comes along and blows the clouds and drives the fog away and a panorama of 10,000 images appears all at once. Our nature is pure, like the clear sky above. And our wisdom is like the sun and the moon, Our wisdom is always shining. But if externally we become attached to objects, the clouds of delusion cover up our nature, and we can't see it. Then, because we meet a good friend who explains the true teaching, our delusions are blown away, and everything inside and outside becomes perfectly clear. And the 10,000 dharmas in this nature of ours all appear. This nature of ours in which the 10,000 dharmas are present is what we mean by the pure dharma body. Those of you who take refuge in yourselves, if you get rid of bad thoughts and bad practices, this is called taking refuge. What do we mean by the myriad-fold transformation body, the Sambhogakaya? If we didn't think, our nature would be utterly empty. When we think, we transform ourselves. If we think evil thoughts, we turn into the denizens of hell. If we think good thoughts, we turn into the deities of heaven. Malice turns us into beasts. Compassion turns us into bodhisattvas. Wisdom transports us to the higher realms and ignorance sends us into the lower depths. Our nature is constantly transforming itself, but deluded people are unaware of this. Once we think of goodness, wisdom arises. One lamp, can dispel a thousand years of darkness and one thought of wisdom can end 10,000 years of ignorance. Don't think about what's past. Keep thinking about what's next. When your next thought is always good, this is what we call the realization body. One bad thought results in the destruction of a thousand years of good ones. In the face of impermanence, if your next thought is good, this is what we call the realization body. The thoughts that come from the Dharma body are your transformation body, the nirmanakaya. And when every thought is good, this is your realization body. When you yourself become aware of this, and when you yourself cultivate this, this is called taking refuge. Your material body is made of flesh and bones. Your material body is but an inn, and not a fit place of refuge. Just become aware of your three bodies, and you will understand what is truly important. So, a little long winded, but everything he says is true. No need to look outside and try to understand something going on outside. What is this Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya? It's your own nature, your boundless unborn, limitless nature is the dharmakaya. Your practice, your sincere practice is the Sambogakaya. And you, sitting here, manifesting your practice, manifesting your boundless nature. You, right now, are the nirmanakaya. Rinzai said pretty much the same thing that Eno said, but Rinzai being Rinzai, he said it in as few words as possible. Do you wish to be no different from the Buddhas and patriarchs? Then just do not look for anything outside. The pure light of your own heart at this instant is the Dharmakaya Buddha in your own house. The pure light of your own heart Your boundless nature, the word heart is used interchangeably with mind, your heart-mind, boundless, pure, as the sky, as the dharmakaya. The non-differentiating light of your heart at this instant, is the Sambhogakaya Buddha in your own house. When Ano talks about the clouds stirred up by attachment, he's saying the same thing, but in many more words. The non-differentiating light of your own heart, that open heart that embraces everything, the good, the so-called bad, the pain, the joy. The non-differentiating light of your heart is the Sambhogakaya. The non-discriminating light of your own heart at this instant is the Nirmanakaya Buddha in your own house, the Trinity of the Buddha's body is none other than you. Here before my eyes, listening to me expounding the Dharma. Couldn't be more clear. And yet, words will always confuse. You know what he's talking about when you sit and all of the thoughts fall away. All of the judgments fall away. The pain is not pain anymore, but just something that brings you deeper into samadhi. The tiredness is not tiredness anymore. It's just something that breaks down little barriers. The non-discriminating light of your own heart. That's all we're doing when we're doing zazen, is looking into our own heart, our own heart-mind. Just being with it, letting it shine, letting that mind be as boundless as the sky. Whatever clouds come, whatever rain comes, it's all just this. So that is the Buddhist trinity, the dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya. No reason to look outside for anything else. The next in the series of threes, The Three Treasures, also sometimes called the Three Jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Before I get to it, I think you all need a little break. It's a funny thing. Once you're sitting up here and begin talking, you forget that you're thirsty. You forget that you're falling asleep. You know, it just sort of comes out of you. Sometimes I sometimes I forget so badly that I just never take a drink and everybody is suffering. And I have to I have to remind myself, oh yeah, you're supposed to take a drink. Okay, so the three treasures. The Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, of course, very similar in a way, to the trikaya, the dharmakaya, the sambhogakaya, and the nirmanakaya. The Buddha, of course, is most similar to the nirmanakaya, because we're talking, in most instances, of the historical Buddha. But, of course, Zen being Zen, that's not what Buddha was to Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma, talking about Buddha, said, Buddha is Sanskrit for what you call aware, miraculously aware. Responding, perceiving, arching your brows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. It's all your miraculously aware nature. And this nature is the mind. And the mind is Buddha. And the Buddha is the path, the Tao. And the path is Zen. But the word Zen is one that remains a puzzle to both mortals and sages. Seeing your nature is Zen. Unless you see your nature, it's not Zen. So yes, Buddha is the historical Buddha, but Buddha is also each of you sitting here. And just looking into your heart and seeing in your heart this Buddha nature, this miraculously aware nature, this boundless awareness, this boundless heart mind. So, Buddha dharma and sangha and dharma like buddha can be looked at two ways dharma of course is the teaching all of the various manifestations of the teaching the diamond sutra the heart sutra but all kinds of teachings. The teaching of a flower. The teaching of the sun and moon and stars and fog. The teaching of When you're in the dining hall and you are drawing the food along the table, drawing it far enough that the person next to you doesn't have to reach all the way to grab it. You pull it further than you need because there's somebody sitting next to you. That's also a teaching. That's also Dharma. And dharma corresponds roughly to the Sambhogakaya. It's the connections that allow you to bring your Buddha nature to your neighbor and to the world. And the Sangha, the Sangha is in one way the easiest to define. You know, everybody sitting here together is the Sangha. The Sangha of followers of the way, followers of the path the Buddhist community, including the teachers, the students, monastics. But the Sangha is also everyone that you come in contact with. How do you teach? How do you act as a bodhisattva to save all beings? you can only do that by contacting your fellow beings and manifesting in yourself the teaching, manifesting in yourself the Buddha nature. The Sangha has no limits. It has no limits in terms of religious belief, in terms of color, gender, even species. All living beings are part of the Sangha, the three treasures. When you take refuge in the three treasures, you're taking real refuge. Refuge in the sense of the place of comfort, rest, trust, faith. To take refuge in the three treasures is real refuge. As Aino said, this body is not a fit refuge, it's an inn, it's a stopping place, it will be with you for some decades and then gone, but the three treasures are a fit refuge. But even taking refuge in the Three Treasures, there will be times, as there always are, of confusion, turmoil, anxiety, fear, anger, hatred. There will be times when your heart is troubled. Even having taken refuge The clouds of confusion will come. And when that happens, one of the methods for relieving this confusion is to clearly look into the nature of. this matter to look into your own heart and find the boundless nature within and to look at the nature of existence, the three marks of existence. What is it that we are made of? And when I say we, I include All things, this lectern, this platform, the bell, all of you, me. What is the nature of existence? The first most important thing to keep in mind is that all of it is impermanent. Even the things which seem so lasting, mountains. I read somewhere that some millions of years ago, the Catskill Mountains were as high as the Himalayas. You know, we think of mountains as this unchanging object, but it's not. It's just as impermanent as we are, it's just a different time scale. Mountains shift, seas dry up, continents drift. Planets are destroyed. Suns are destroyed. One of the beautiful things right now is the Webb Space Telescope that is looking into the remote, remote past, close to the origin of the universe only a few hundred million years after the origin of the universe and looking at stars that no longer exist we can still see them because their light has taken 13 billion years to get here but those stars that are giving us their light now they're dead they're gone, just as gone as you or I are going to be gone. And perhaps, perhaps some of the atoms in us are from those stars, because that's how all of the complex material, all of the larger atoms are formed all of these explosions, the stars, they explode. And that's how, that's how we get these compounds. So yeah, they're dead, but maybe they're living in you and me. That's impermanence. One thing always changing into something else and it never stops. It's true within our own lifetime. And it will be true after our death. Just one thing changing into the next. That's impermanence. And it's also true of what we think of non-material things. Our thoughts. Our emotions. Our fears. Our accomplishments our bank accounts. One thing getting bigger, one thing getting smaller, sometimes disappearing. (laughs) But whenever you are beset by fear, by... confusion by self-loathing impermanence is a very comforting thought this too shall pass I sometimes think of um, the epidemic of gun violence in this country, and of course all of the murders are terrifying and horrifying. But many, many, many more people kill themselves than kill other people with guns. The number of suicides in this country owing to guns is just astounding. And the reason that I say owing to guns is that most people who commit suicide by gun are successful, not necessarily something you want to be successful at. Most people who try it some other way are unsuccessful, they live to fight another day, and most of them never attempt suicide again, and most get over whatever it was that was troubling them because of impermanence. Temporary insanity that leads to suicide passes, it's temporary, in almost all cases. But if a truly fatal means of attempting it is available, then you don't get a second chance. The second mark of existence is something we're all familiar with. It's uh, what we are experiencing almost continuously, and that is unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. And dukkha is usually very unsatisfactorily translated as suffering, but suffering is so dramatic, and dukkha is sometimes dramatic, but usually it's not. Usually it's just that thing which is bugging you, or that thing which you really, really like but is not going to be there, and then once it's gone, that's really going to bug you. just like impermanence and dukkha is constantly shifting and the third mark of existence is not self that is to say as we chant in the heart sutra form is emptiness and emptiness is form those things that seem so solid, really aren't. Those thoughts that seem so compelling will soon dispel because they have no lasting identity, no self. So if you can keep those things in mind, if you can see your way into them clearly, become really intimate with those characteristics and recognize that whatever is going on, whatever you see, whatever you feel, whatever you touch, is just an expression of these marks of existence. Impermanent. Unsatisfactory. And unsatisfactory is another way of saying not worth holding on to. None of it is worth holding on to. and not self how many times do we criticize ourselves for this or that we get down on ourselves or get down on other people and we take our judgments so seriously oh this person is such a bad person well, you know, wait 10 minutes. <laughs> they're not going to be that same person, and they're not going to be this bad person that you think they are. They'll be something else. You may still not like them, but they'll be something else. Just as you'll be something else. Whenever you're taking things too seriously, whenever you are just in the fog of confusion and attachment, remind yourself, none of it is going to last. None of it is fundamentally real. It's all just... A shadow. As the sun moves, the shadow shifts. And none of it is worth holding on to. You'll get nowhere that way. So those are the three marks of existence. And as I said, the three treasures are a true refuge, but... Amidst turmoil and confusion, you'll not remain long deceived if you keep the three marks of existence clearly in mind. And along the lines of unsatisfactoriness, the last of the threesomes is the three poisons. And the three poisons have been translated in so many different versions. I, I like the version of grasping, aversion, and ignorance, because I think they cover the most bases. Um, grasping is sometimes translated as passion, if you think of the lust for money, the lust for power, the lust for sex, whatever lust is there, the attachment, the reaching out and taking hold, that's grasping. Aversion is sometimes translated as anger or aggression but that's only one side of aversion. That's, to get back to number two, and yin and yang, that's the yang side of aversion, the active, forceful side of aversion. But just as important is running away, avoidance just something that you know some it's summarized by fight or flight right if something is threatening you you've got the choice of beating it up and triumphing that way or running away to live another day the problem is that most things really don't call for such kind of behavior, but we do it anyway. And the last of the three poisons is ignorance, which is usually translated as delusion. Delusion is also in a sense the yang side of ignorance delusion is kind of actively making up stories about stuff but ignorance also covers simply not being aware simply not paying attention There's a, there was a psychological experiment, um, I forget when it was performed, but it's, it's not very recent, um, in which they uh, were testing people's perception. And they, um, were, they had a crowd watching a basketball game Um, I think it was a video of a basketball game, and it was a good basketball game. And in the middle of the basketball game, they had somebody in a gorilla suit running across the court. And they asked afterwards, you know, what did you see? And, And people described the basketball game and the colors of the uniforms and the the way the players played and the, you know, how many goals were scored and all, all of this stuff, and almost nobody saw the gorilla because they weren't looking for a gorilla. They were looking for a basketball game. I think it was something like 10% of people saw the gorilla and everybody else just saw the basketball game. And this is our common experience. We see what we are looking to see. Our preconceived ideas of reality is what we see. And when reality doesn't conform to our preconceived ideas, we don't see it. This is ignorance. Just like the coworker who you've already decided is a schmuck, and they do something nice, and you don't even notice that they've done something nice because they're a schmuck. They don't do anything nice. <laughs> this is ignorance. And the three poisons are always with us. There's really no getting away from them. They're always there with us. You can do Zazen for a thousand years and you will still be prone to grasping, aversion, and ignorance. So, what do you do about it? There was this guy, Atisha. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Um Atisha was a prince and it seems like all of the great Indian teachers were princes you know Shakyamuni was a prince and Bodhidharma was a prince and Atisha was a prince but they all leave they you know that's their rebellion against their family they they go off and they become holy men so Atisha went off and became a holy man and He studied with many, many, many teachers, reputedly 150 teachers, um, and he embarked on a career of, um, I guess you could call it itinerant preaching, and he went from Bengal in India to uh, Tibet, and also to Sumatra, which kind of surprised me. And in Tibet, he... Tibet had already, just like um, Buddhism had been introduced in China when Bodhidharma was there, had already been there for hundreds of years, Buddhism was already there in Tibet, but it was in decline. In fact, it it had been badly suppressed by, by a Tibetan king. And it was really just kind of falling apart. Uh, And Atisha came and really reinvigorated Tibetan Buddhism. And he's famous for lots and lots of things, but one of the things that I know him best for, and um, I really love, um, was the mind training Um, the Lojong slogans that he developed, which are 59 slogans, which are guides to meditation practice, the practice of relationship, the practice of opening your heart, and the practice of examining yourself. And he came up with all of these wonderful, wonderful slogans to help guide people. Um, There are two really good books on it that I can recommend if you're interested. One is from a Zen perspective, and it was written by Zoketsu Norman Fisher, um, who is a Zen priest in the San Francisco Zen Center lineage, um, you know, it passed down through Shinryu Suzuki. Um, and the other is Pima Chodron, who was a student of uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, her book is called Start Where You Are, and his book is called Training in Compassion. Both really excellent books. So If you have free time, after session, look them up. Um, Anyway, the eighth of the Lojong slogans says, three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. So this needs a little explanation. Three objects are refer not to a specific object, but the um, reaction that they instill. So the three objects are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Pleasant objects engender the poison of grasping. You see something you like, and you want it. Unpleasant objects engender the poison of aversion. And neutral objects engender the poison of ignorance. Why? Because they're boring. When they're boring, you tune them out. They might as well not be there. And that's ignorance. Or you're so bored that you start making up stories to entertain yourself. That's the delusion side of ignorance. So something is neutral, but you make it into something fantastic or awful. And that's ignorance. So three objects, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral... Three poisons, grasping, aversion, and ignorance. So what are the three seeds of virtue? Okay. The three seeds of virtue are how you handle these objects and poisons. The first thing that you have to do is to pay attention. What do we chant at mealtime? Thirdly, what is most essential is the practice of attention, which helps us cut through greed, anger, and delusion. If you're not paying attention, you don't even know that that it's there. Right? You're angry? You don't even know you're angry. Right? You're afraid? You don't even know you're afraid. You're making up weird stories about something which is completely normal, and you don't even know you're making up weird stories because you're not paying attention. The second thing that you have to do is to be honest. When you are angry, admit to yourself, I'm angry or I'm afraid, or I'm anxious. You have, to, you have to, first of all, face what it is that's coming up. So pay attention and don't be afraid to call it what it is. And the third thing is not to pass judgment about it. Whatever it is that is going on, It doesn't mean that you're a bad person, or a bad Zen student, or a bad Christian, or some kind of loser. It just means that you're human. That's it. You're human. And humans have this tendency, three objects, three poisons, Sometimes the objects are are very straightforward and, you know, right there, unambiguous. But a lot of times there are all kinds of things mixed in. There's fear mixed in with, anger mixed in with, confusion mixed in with, grasping with, it gets very complicated. But if you're paying attention and you're honest and you don't pass judgment, you're already way ahead. And then the fourth, and this is the the part that is particularly important in Tibetan practice, is you realize that everybody else is in the same boat that you're in. You're not the only one that's angry. You're not the only one that's afraid. Everybody is. Everybody's confused. Everybody's deluded. So when those things arise in yourself, you recognize them, you face them, and you recognize that everybody else is in the same boat. And that's where compassion arises. And that's the seed of virtue, the compassion. Recognizing that everybody is suffering in the same way that you are. And you can offer your own suffering for everybody else. May I suffer this anger so that other people don't have to suffer it. May I suffer this pain so that other people don't have to suffer it. So that's the three seeds of virtue. So when, when these things arise in you, you don't have to condemn yourself. You say, ah, oh, This is my chance to show compassion for everyone. This confusion, this fear, this anxiety, everybody else is going through it. I'm no different. Let me feel this now so that they can be free of it. Well, I think I've spoken enough. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org.